Well, as was stated earlier, I'm uh, one of the pastors at Hamilton Baptist Church, and it is uh, good to be with you. And I think one of the, the ways that I really <clears throat> cherish being with you is that by you having uh, another pastor from an- another church come to preach to you guys, uh, I, I think it just highlights it's not about Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. It's not ultimately about Hamilton Baptist Church. It's about the kingdom of God. And that he would be lifted high. And so I really do think it's a sweet time to be with you guys um, each time I'm here. And I greatly appreciate you receiving me as well. And so we will be in John chapter 4. If you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 43. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. So John chapter 4 verse 43. And as you're opening your Bibles there... Uh, I would just like to give you a very, very quick overview of the book of John. So John writes, and you could even say organizes this book uh, according to seven signs. And in the very end of John, John chapter 20, he tells us exactly why he's included specifically these seven signs that are recorded. And I love it when somebody writes and they're very clear and they tell me exactly why they write And so I really appreciate this about John in uh, chapter 20. He says that he wrote these things, these signs that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, that you would have life in him. So I think that needs to be on our minds as we receive this word from John chapter four today, that everything that we hear is meant to remind us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So let us pray now. Father, we come to you and we ask that you you would be amongst us, that your word would go forth, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to eagerly receive your word because it is from you. And so whatever says today, would your truth be held high, would Christ be lifted high, and may we gaze upon our Savior. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, there is a man by the name of Kanye West who has been in the news a lot last year. If uh, you don't know him, I I, um, actually asked my kids a while back, do you guys know who, who Kanye West is? And they looked at me with this blank stare like, Dad, we have no clue. And so if you are amongst those, you don't know who he is. He is a music mogul. Um, He's had at least a 20-year career, written songs. Last year, he was in the news a lot because he made a profession of faith and has been leading these evangelistic-type services. He's calling Sunday services, but they're not necessarily held on a Sunday. But before he claimed to be a believer, Kanye West had a song that he wrote It came out in 2005 called Gold Digger. All right, I won't read you all the lyrics, but I do want to read just a few of them to you. Says, she take my money when I'm in need. Yeah, she's a trifling friend indeed. Oh, she's a gold digger way over town that digs on me. Cutie the bomb met her at a beauty salon with a baby Louis Vuitton under her underarm. She's a gold digger. Right, we can all identify with this in some way, whether we've heard stories about people being used for their wealth and their riches, or maybe even children who want to go to a certain kid's house because they've got the new toy 
that they want to play with. Or maybe it's the rich who feel skeptical around others because they're afraid they might be used. But imagine being the creator of the universe. Where you've got everything at your disposal and you can do anything that you ever dreamed of. That would make me skeptical of everybody. Of everyone, right? I would wonder, do they like me because of who I am or because of what they hope to get from me? I would think, are people out to use me? Are they just trying to take advantage of being a friend of mine? We find ourselves in a story very similar to this. But the difference between you and I having everything at our disposal and the Savior having all things at his will, at his command, is that he knows the heart of man. Right? Jesus knows exactly why people come to him, why people seek him. So if you would look at John 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 43. After the two days he departed from Galilee, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So we see in verse 54, this is the second sign that Jesus performs in Galilee, right? It may perhaps some scholars would even say might even be the third sign that John's writing about. But at the very least, we know this is the second sign that's recorded in John when Jesus is in Galilee. And if we were to back up to John chapter two, just as as referenced in this passage, we would see that at the beginning of John chapter two, Jesus is in Cana where he changes water to wine at the wedding feast. And then he heads off to Jerusalem, where you are probably familiar with the the story where Jesus comes into the temple and he turns over tables and is very angry, where he cleanses the temple. And it's now in John chapter four, after Jesus has gone from Cana to Jerusalem, he now makes his way back to Galilee at the beginning of John chapter four. And he has this short stay in Samaria where he encounters this lady, this woman at the well. He is received warmly by these half-breeds, these Samaritans who, in fact, were looked down upon. And after two days in Samaria, 
Jesus now arrives back in Cana in verse 43. And you would think of all places that Jesus has received, right? He spends time in a place that, that Jews don't really like and th- these part, people aren't fully Jews. You would think if these people receive Christ, Surely he'd be received amongst his own region, of, amongst his own people. And John says he does. In fact, at least a little bit he's received. We see in verse 45, right? They welcomed him. But we also see perhaps this welcome is not quite as warm, quite as affectionate as we might expect. Verse 44, Jesus says, or we're reminded by John, That Jesus has once already said, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And then we get even more of, of insight into this in verse 45, right? After they received him, what does it say? They welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had gone to the feast. So these people had seen Jesus in Jerusalem where he cleansed the temple, where according to John 2, 23, that he performed many signs and miracles. And so now he comes back and they remember what he's done. They receive him because of what he had already done. They receive him because of these miracles, in fact. Their interest in Christ is this wonder-working figure, this man who they come to like a genie where I want something from him, so I'm going to come to him. Seeking benefits of Christ instead of seeking Christ, who is the Savior, who is salvation for all who would believe. Right. And John drives this point home even further in verse 46, where he says that Jesus turned water into wine. These people had already seen Jesus, not just in Jerusalem, but they also saw him in Cana. Turning water into wine. But apparently this word about Christ is not just known here in Cana, but is also spreading so much so that about 15 miles away, this royal official hears in Capernaum that Jesus is coming from Judea to Galilee. So you could maybe even just imagine being in this official's shoes yourself, right? He's got a son who is ill to the point of death that that he's almost willing to do anything, right? He's rich, and yet he can't do anything. He can't find doctors to solve this, to heal his son. And so perhaps he even has this great feeling of hopelessness. Hopelessness, but he's filled with a deep love for his son who is on his deathbed. And so he makes this journey to see Christ. And you can almost hear the father pleading. Jesus, would you just come, just leave here and come home with me and see my son and heal him? And Jesus' response is quite different than I would expect, perhaps even you would expect. His response seems maybe perhaps even a little harsh and cold because in verse 48 we see, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus right here, he's demanding genuine faith. So the first thing I want us to take from today, if you're taking notes, is verses 48 through 50. They show us that Jesus demands genuine faith. 
right? This man, he comes to him seeking Christ for his son to be healed. And Jesus says, unless you see signs, unless you see wonders, you're not going to believe. So it it, it seems like to me, Jesus is almost saying, I want you to just go away. Leave me if all you're coming to get is miracles and things done for you. I want you to seek me for who I am. I want you to come to me because you believe in who I am, right? I'm not this magician at the carnival where I do something wonderful and you clap and cheer and then I do something else, maybe a greater thing, and then maybe he gets a roar from the crowd. Jesus is saying, I want you to believe not in these signs. And my question is, what do we do with these signs? Do we just... Do we just dismiss them? Do we reject them? Saying they don't matter? Well, if we do that, then that seems to be the exact opposite of why John put them in this book. Right? The purpose. He says, I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in Him. So we can't just dismiss these signs and reject them. In fact, I think John puts these here to say these signs that I've recorded, this one here is to be like a signpost. It's to point us to who Christ is like a sign, a road sign does. The point of the road sign is not to say, hey, look at me, but it's to remind us saying something's coming ahead. Look at the real thing. So the Jews had it backwards. They were seeking Jesus for signs and miracles. This man was seeking Christ for these signs and miracles. Jesus is in fact saying, your faith must not, it cannot be in wonders and signs, that it must be in a person. It must be in me. Verse 48 again, I want to remind you, says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I think it's very interesting, right? This is Jesus' Jesus's response to this man. But if you look, there's, uh, at least in the ESV and perhaps even in your Bible, there's a little footnote after the first you. And if you look down at the footnote, it says this you is plural. Okay, this you is used twice in this one verse. So if you're from the South like me, from Tennessee or somewhere else like that, uh, we, we use the, the word you, plural, and we don't actually say just the word you. We say you all or y'all, right? In fact, if you go to the, uh, one of the PGA Tour events in Memphis, uh, the people that want the crowd to be quiet, they, say, they usually say quiet or something like that. In Memphis, it says, hush, y'all. And so this is, this is the, the plural form of you. So you could read this, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. So as Jesus speaks to this man, he's speaking to everyone around that sees, you all are coming for signs and wonders. You all. And if we were to zoom out just a little bit, and look at even just what, what the people Jesus has encountered already in this gospel. You would see Nicodemus, John chapter 3. 
He comes here. He is a religious ruler, right? Jesus says, you need me. The Samaritan woman, society's outcast. You need me. And now this royal official who, according to the world, is powerful and rich. You need me. Every single person stands in need of Christ. The religious, society's outcast, the powerful and the rich. Every single person must come to faith. Or at least they must come to Christ in faith. We come to him with nothing. Your good works, they mean nothing. Your wealth means nothing. We must come to Christ in faith. And you even see this sense of desperation in this father, right? Where he even says in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child die. There's this desperation. There's this begging. And if you've ever been to a children's hospital or been to a hospital on the children's floor where you go and you see these kids, some of them, many of them on their deathbed, they are deathly ill. And you look at a parent's face. You see parents who are beaten up, who are tired, who are worn out, who are desperate feeling like this is their last hope. I wonder if you can see that in this man here when he comes to Christ. Sir, just come to my house. Jesus, just come to my house. It's like he's saying, okay, I'm not asking you now to heal my son. Just come. I just want you to be there. I, I just need you to meet him. And again, Jesus responds with something that I would not think comes natural. Jesus says, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live, right? This is not a command that can be obeyed by any other means unless there is true, genuine faith. It's a command that demands a response. Let me just give you an example. Right. If you've got children or maybe maybe you don't have kids yet, but you remember a parent doing this, they take you to the pool. And you don't know how to swim yet. And the parent walks in right along the edge and and the child just standing there with their their legs shaking. And you maybe even see their lip quivering. And and dad says, jump to me. That's a command that demands a response. Jump to me. Right. And the child, what do they say? I'm scared. I don't want to. No, I really don't want to go swimming. And then as a dad, I say, son, I'm not the strongest guy in the world, but I can definitely catch you. And even more than that, I want to catch you jump. It's a command that demands a response. Or maybe you remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the last thing Jesus says to him is, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. It's a command that demands a response. And what happens? He goes away dejected, sad, because he loved his money more than he loved Christ. He loved his possessions more than following Christ. 
The only way the rich young ruler could have obeyed was if he had genuine faith in Christ. So the only way this royal official leaves Christ and goes home believing that his son would live is if he believes in Christ. And what do we see? Verse 50 says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed Jesus, right? He took Jesus at his word and believed. All of us place faith in something. I want to ask you, what do you place faith in? Even the atheist who says there is no God places faith in something. It might be his intellect. It might be his reasoning skills. It might be his good works. What do you place faith in? Do you come to Jesus only when you're in a pinch, only when finances are tight or you've got a deadline at work? Do you just treat him like a genie coming to him in prayer only when you want something from him? Maybe you come to ask for good health, but yet you forget him when life is good. I want to remind you, genuine faith is in Christ. So if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ today, I'm glad you're here. Perhaps you're here seeking God because you want something from him. Maybe you're here seeking him out of self-interest. And so I want to ask you today, have you been using God your entire life? Maybe you've even been raised in the church. Maybe you're here because mom and dad said, hey, get in the car. Or maybe you're here because your school expects you to be here. Maybe you've been raised in a Christian home, but you only come to God when you need something from him. Based on this word here today, I want to implore you that Christ, he offers so much more than simply giving you what you want. He offers himself. He offers life in him. But also, if you're a believer, this passage is for you today, too, because you can be tempted to love the things that God is doing around you. You can be tempted into being lulled into to being, well, things are good here at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. God's sustaining us and, and things are going relatively well. I want to encourage you, don't be distracted by relative peace. That things may be relatively good here. You must seek Christ. You must come to him in his word, looking to him and longing to see Christ, to cherish Christ. So now that we see that Christ demands genuine faith. Let us look now to what I want us to consider the second point is how Christ responds to genuine faith. How Christ responds to genuine faith. Right? Verse 50, we've already seen it. Jesus says, go, your son will live. So Jesus gives life through the power of his word. This official son was ill to the point of death. This dad, in fact, is turning to Jesus as his last ditch effort. No one's been able to heal him. The son was as good as dead. 
And even though this man came to Christ with a fascination at the very beginning when he comes to him, fascination with Christ's abilities, we see a shift now in this man's belief, right? He has faith in Jesus. After encountering Christ, he has faith in Christ. So there's great power in the word of Christ that Jesus, through the power of his word, heals. So I want to ask you, have you experienced the power of the word of Christ in your life? Have, has Christ given you life? If he hasn't, then it's by no accident that you're here today. You're here hearing about this wonder working savior, even as these people sought Christ because he was a miracle working man. Maybe you've come today seeking something from God. But he's not here. Christ doesn't just show up on the scene in John chapter four just because he simply wants to heal the sick. Christ doesn't perform miracles just so that you would look at him and say, man, that guy's awesome. I want something like that. Jesus does these miracles. They all point to him as the wonderful savior, the one who offers life, who offers salvation in his name. So listen, all of us, every single one of us apart from Christ is sick to the point of death. And in fact, we're actually worse than that. According to Ephesians 2, we actually are dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope of coming to life. That's true for every single one of us. Every single person in the world that has ever lived, that is true of them unless Christ has intervened, unless Christ brings you to life. So this ought to produce a humility in us as we come to Christ. But it also ought to, del- ought to bring us de- great delight. That Jesus, in fact, delights to give life. That you, through Christ, can have forgiveness of sins. That you can be given life and freed from sin. That you can experience joy in this life if you would simply believe. And Jesus does this through the power of his word, right? This man believes Christ brings to life. And it reminds me of creation, right? God forms the man out of the dust of the earth. And so it's almost like you could, you could see Adam, his body formed, but he doesn't actually have life until what happens? Until God breathes life into him. He is still and lifeless and dead. And it's not until Christ breathes that the words bring life into this body. It's not until Christ breathes life that you can be brought from death to life. And so I want to ask you, would you believe today? Would you place faith in? In Christ, who is the only one that can save your soul. We ought to be thrilled that Christ gives life. But I think we also have to remember, if you've been a believer for a while, for a 
for maybe a few years or maybe even the majority of your life, this ought to thrill you because not, I think sometimes we forget or we forget to, to marvel at what's been done for us in salvation. You've heard it a lot, right? Even what I've told you so far this morning, you're like, yeah, well, Josh, good. I know this. And maybe you've not actually said those words, but maybe that's the response of your heart. I know, right? This is great. I've heard this a hundred times before. But if you are in Christ, this ought to thrill your soul that something has been done to you that no one else could ever do, not even yourself, that you've been brought from death to life, that you could rejoice in the miraculous work of Christ today. So we've seen that Jesus demands genuine faith. We've seen that Jesus responds to genuine faith. Now I want us, as we look at verses 51 to 53, to see the result of genuine faith. Let us read again verses 51 through 53. As he was going down, that is the royal official, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Right? So the result of genuine faith. This man responds in faith to Christ's command, Go, your son will live. And then we see the result, right? It's as if his faith is confirmed. He leaves. He's going home and his servants meet him. And and what happens? They confirm that the words of Christ that this man heard actually came true. He already believed and is heading home. And then he gets this news from his servants. And just like you and I, if we heard this news, we would be so happy, right? We would be curious Like, okay, what happened? Tell me about the details. When was it that he started getting better? And it's at the very moment, the very hour Christ said, your son will live, that these servants report your son began getting better. The illness, the fever left. So you can only, or I can imagine, and, and, and you could probably put yourself in the father's shoes, right? You'd be bursting with joy. I would probably, knowing me, I'd probably start crying. I probably wouldn't dance, but some of you might be prone to dancing, jumping, shouting. You might skip home. You might run home in excitement to see your child who's been brought to life. This father had to have gone home with great joy, thinking his whole way home. This man... This wonder-working, sign-performing, miracle-working man, he's more than just an ordinary man. For all the doctors that my money could afford so far, none of them have healed him. But just by his very words, this man, the Christ, has healed my son. So with great joy, I think he goes home. His faith is confirmed, right? He hears the good news that what he already believed, the words of Christ, your son will live, are confirmed. He hears it once from his his servants and then he sees it when he gets home. 
It's as if this faith that he already had in seed is growing and budding, being confirmed as he sees his as he sees his son. That the result of the power of the words of Christ, they do what they are set out to accomplish. They bring life. And then according to verse 53, the father believed and all his household. Have you ever believed something so strongly that you can't help and had such great delight in it that you couldn't help but tell others? Right. If it's football season, you and I are going to talk about the Dallas Cowboys because they're America's team and the greatest team that has ever been. And I'm going to have great delight in talking to you about the Cowboys. And you're going to remind me, well, Josh, they haven't won a playoff game in however many years and they haven't uh, won a Super Bowl in 25 years. But we'll talk about the Cowboys and I'll have great delight. This man. He believed and he went home and he told his family. You can only assume that he told his family, right? He believed. And then what? It doesn't say Jesus came and then told them about himself. He believed and all his household. He must have gone home because he believed with great joy and seeing his faith confirmed. I want my family to know Christ. He tells his family about Christ. And I can't help but think about the apostles, the disciples who seemed to be men of great faith, but then vacillated back and forth throughout their life, where at first they seemed to be men of faith, where, right, they cast out demons, they healed the sick and they taught and they baptized all in the name of Christ. But then they were scared on the storm tossed seas. Or they deny Christ when a little girl Asks, are you his disciple? But then, when the resurrection comes, the one that they placed faith in is confirmed that he is the Christ. Right? And what happens after that? There's nothing that can stop them. No persecution, no threat of death, no threat of imprisonment or beatings can stop them from sharing Christ. They are constantly talking about Jesus. It must have been like that with this man. He placed faith in him. And then he goes home and he hears that his son is well. His faith is confirmed and with joy tells them that his Christ, that his Savior is the one who has brought life. This is a miraculous story that happens every single time someone has placed faith in Christ. They're brought from death to life, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. They are enshackled uh, by sin and then they are freed to Christ. And that's the truth of the gospel. We must remember it. We must preach it everywhere we go. In our neighborhoods, at work, with our families, and men, I especially want to challenge you, fathers, grandfathers. Notice who it is in this passage that believes and then what follows, right? 
Verse 50, the man believed. Verse 53, he himself, referring to the man, believed, and then his household. So dads and granddads, I want to encourage you. Be the men in your home that lead your families to Jesus. Point them to Christ, that your kids would hear more of Christ from you than anyone else in your family. Dads, granddads. And I lump you into this boat because if you remember um, Paul's exhortation to Timothy, he says to remember the faith that was passed down to him from his mom, but not just his mom, from his grandmother, from Eunice and Lois. So granddads, you can play a huge role in the faith of your grandchildren. Don't just pass that off of, I train my children, and now they have the responsibility of training their children. Insofar as it's possible with you, share Christ. Point your grandkids to Christ every moment you can. So dads, granddads, if you're in the car, pray with your kids. Teach them about Christ. If you're sitting at dinner or even when struggles come in life, your kids need to see you clinging to Jesus, not just when it's good, not just on a Sunday morning, but every single moment of life, even and especially even when it's difficult. When you lose a job. When a close friend dies. When things happen, when you get overlooked for the promotion at work and you thought you deserved it. Look to Christ. Help your family see, your wives see, that he is the one that you cling to. Let them see your faith in Jesus. And I don't want us to leave today without reminding us one last time. We cannot, we should not come to Christ as if he's a genie. Where we come to him, wanting things from him, and then forget him in the rest of life and the rest of the week. Right? Because that's the very same thing as, as putting very nice clothes on a dead person or putting perfume on a dead person. Nothing you can do, putting clothes or a suit and a tie, putting perfume and makeup on a dead person, does nothing for their state. It does not change the reality of their deadness. The only thing that brings a person from death to life is the words of Christ. You will live. So I want to ask you, if you are here, have you placed faith in Jesus? Because there's nothing greater that you could hear today than the words that Christ spoke to Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. And he walked out alive. Would you place faith in Jesus today if you have not done that? And it's in his name. Let's pray now. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ. We come to you asking that. That if there is one here today who has not placed faith in you. That you would grant them repentance. That you would grant them life. 
And Father, even as we have seen that your word today is meant to remind us, to point us to Jesus as, in fact, the Son of God, would you help us to believe it, not just once for salvation, but would you help us to believe it daily? That he would be the one that we cling to. That he would be the one that we come to. Because there's nothing greater than his presence that we could desire. And yes, as we come to him, wanting him, it is okay for us to come asking things of him. But help us to cherish him above everything else. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen.